People don't think about the fact that the oceans are 70 plus percent of the ocean's planet. Every other breath we take was provided for us by the ocean in the carbon cycle. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's 40 Minute Mentor is Steve Etherton, President Emir of Deep an international research and development organization that only just recently came out of stealth mode and has received a lot of international press as a result. The DEEP team is on an incredible mission to become the NASA of the ocean by imagining and inventing amazing things that empower our species to sustainably explore, live, work and thrive underwater. Before joining DEEP, Steve's CV burst with incredible experience, including 12 years as an officer in the British Army, building a multi-asset class investment business and 10 years creating and growing one of Africa's fastest growing fintechs, Jumo. JBM had the immense pleasure of placing Steve and some of his senior team at Deep in the very early days, so I am so excited to have him join us here on the podcast to delve further into his career to date and share more about the incredible work he's doing at Deep. So, Steve, great to see you again. How are things? And thank you so much for coming on Fortuna Mentor. Fantastic. Thanks very much, James. And it feels like no time since we were first talking about this opportunity on the horizon. So, uh, yeah, two and a half. Three years has gone by very quickly. Incredible. Well, they say time flies by when you're having fun and you've definitely had a lot of fun and probably a lot of very full on days in the last couple of years. So I can't wait to uh, share more with our, our listeners. But before we do that, we'll get you started with some warm up questions as we always do. So please finish the following sentences after me. Question one, I grew up wanting to be Soldier, explorer, astronaut, and also a Taipan, because I read a bit too much James Flavel when I was younger. Fantastic. I feel like you've ticked off a fair few of those. So uh, yeah, amazing. The last time I was scared was when? Both sort of not for a long time and constantly is the answer. So the thing that scares me, the distant sense of not missing opportunities, you know, opportunities to do meaningful things. So that's the constant thing that pushes me. Awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing. The most memorable day in my career was? That's a very good one. Um, I think the actually bringing deep into the world is probably the most memorable one, certainly in, in recent years. So uh, yeah, just being able to talk to everybody about it has been fantastic. Amazing. Can't wait to share a bit more about what deep is doing because it is honestly unlike anything else I've ever heard. So I can imagine that day when you could finally tell people must have been so exciting. My biggest failure to date is? I think it's actually staying with things or not making changes to situations where you've done the bit where you can add the most value and actually you should be you know, moving on or focusing in a different way. So I think that's something I've done once or twice in life and it's one that I've definitely tried to learn from that mistake. Fair enough. I'm sure others can relate to that. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? It's actually the fact that it has to exist alongside the rest of life. So <laughs> I absolutely love that creation of working with people and all of the things that day to day are a massive, when they're happening, feel like a huge battle and really unfair and difficult to deal with. But actually, that's the we're in. So I love 
that as well as finding it hard. But it's actually that fact that you want to use all of your time and energy and you need to balance that with family and friends and life outside it. So it's, it's the fact that it exists in sort of isolation from the rest of your life. It's so true. I say sometimes the phrase, the juggle is real, because it is constantly spinning different plates, isn't it? Where you're trying to give a bit of yourself to your work and I guess your baby, which is what JBM is to me, be a present father, be a great partner, a husband, etc. Have some hobbies, be there for your friend. It is really, really impossible to keep all of those going 100% all the time, isn't it? So I can relate to that a lot. Absolutely. And I've seen you do that building business from scratch. And it's also, I think some of the models we have are a bit misleading. So everybody talks about work-life balance and you're probably aiming for the wrong thing for building something like these kind of these kind of opportunities. It's So you can't help your brain working through a weekend or when you're meant to be on family time. You need more sort of more cunning strategies to be able to get the best out of both sides of life. That's so true. I think somebody said to me, work-life integration is like, it's not a balance, but it's just trying to work the two together in a way that kind of, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for those quick answers, Steve. Great to dig, get a little insight into it, but we're going to, well, I think we'll start at the beginning because I always like to start there. Would love you to take us back in time, uh, hear a bit more about your formative years and upbringing and what sort of impact it had on you, your sort of life and career. Tell us a bit more about that, if you don't mind. Great. Yeah, so I grew up mainly in the southwest of the UK, a uh, fairly rural area, uh, but my family's always been involved in particularly in Asia and internationally with sort of business, education, academic areas. So had this strange, you know, crossover in life where we were in a kind of English countryside, but also we'd have visitors from around the world and my parents and um, family would often be, you know, off spending time in China or Southeast Asia and, and places like that. So I think that probably set in terms of that formative period, uh, you know, I think it, it kind of gave me that sense of the world being a, a big place and a, a friendly, positive place to integrate with. And then I went sort of straight from school. I was very lucky in being able to go straight into the army and specifically into the Gurkhas, which also has this amazing blend of very international culture with the kind of UK institutional aspects as well. Amazing. So you, you sort of start your career in the army. I know you then moved into strategy consulting before entrepreneurship and investing. So you've had a really varied CV. Do you mind telling us a bit more about the, that early part of your career? And I guess particularly, why the army? Why did you decide on that when you did? Yes. Yeah, I think it comes back to that. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Uh, you know, fascinated by business and entrepreneurship and building things but also by the army opportunities it gave to do really interesting things. You know, if you wanted to give a sort of textbook answer, it's also, I think it's still one of the fastest ways to get really well put together leadership and management experience. So you know, at, a, at a young age, you're formally taught and then exposed to all of these situations and still the people you learn from early mentors and role models were some of the best leaders I've ever seen. Actually, it was, even at the time, it was a very conscious bridge of trying to do both when a lot of peers were going straight into the city and trying to work out between those two worlds. So I obviously time in the army, I also did a degree that was quite oriented towards business or at least economics, and then more time in the army and then back into strategy consulting as a way of getting very rapid quickfire experience in a few different areas. 
So Steve, what advice do you have for anyone that's listening to this that is looking to transition out of the army into a, a career in business? First one is to be very confident about it. Having seen so many people transition very successfully, particularly having been nervous about it before the move. And then the other part really is to think very broadly about what skills you've picked up in whatever part of the military it is, and to try to map those across into industry. Because often things that are less obvious within the military can be super valuable outside. So, you know, seeing friends who have been developing experience around cybersecurity or something like that, for example, it's disproportionately valuable in the outside world. And then the other part is, although we emphasize intelligence gathering and reconnaissance so much in the military, most of us probably don't apply that to our own kind of career trend. So it's just to spend as much time as you can digging around and understanding what is out there in the civilian jobs world and entrepreneurship before making the leap. Great advice, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Before we go on to talk about Deep, we'd be remiss to not touch upon Jumo, which was this rocket ship fintech that you joined very early on and scaled to over 300 people. You raised $90 million in the process. So one of those kind of incredible experiences. Can you tell us just a bit more about what your role involved as COO and what were some of the biggest challenges and achievements that you kind of experienced in that crazy roller coaster of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so it actually began with a thesis. So it was from an investment business. We spent quite a lot of time on the gaps in financial services in Africa and emerging markets more broadly, and actually backed a team to start a a business in Africa in one area of financial services, and then decided that actually that was such a big opportunity that we should move fully into just expanding that business. So uh, I actually moved to Ghana, which is quite a big transition from happily hanging out in Mayfair with the investment business. So we essentially stabilized that initial part of the business and then did a couple of years really of research and experimentation with models very much on the ground, some very you know small scale sort of micro finance branches in formal markets in places in Ghana and uh, Kenya in particular, to really try to explore what a scalable model was and eventually got to something that really worked and that applied itself to the digital environment and then spent probably about four or five main years growing that to multi-country, multi-product and with the main banks and main telco operators all involved. Amazing. What an exciting experience. What for you, I guess if you don't mind sharing a bit more about you know, as COO, what were the best parts of that journey for you? And in your mind, uh, as somebody that's been a very successful COO, what makes a good one? And why should others listening to this consider going down the path of COO? I hate to consider myself either you know, good at uh, COO role or, or give too much advice. But what I think what I can do is talk through a little bit of what, you know, what that journey was. So I think the COO and, and other job titles are One of the biggest things is you have to decide what it is because it can be so broad between looking after to being actually mainly commercial and sales oriented to being sort of effectively internal uh, chief exec where there's a lot of external or funding work, all of those. So I think working out as part of a team what type of COO you are and any of those roles, what it really means. The way I've really defined what I most enjoyed doing and sort of hopefully sometimes it's successful is going from quite early stage from a a vision or a an investment thesis 
to translate that into something that can be executed. And so going through those stages of idea to business plan and financial model and all of the operational components to get to that crucial thing of execution being king, really. So that's the part that I found most exciting. And maybe also think about it a little bit like architecting something, but architecting something that keeps changing. And so every few months, you've got a totally different problem. And doing that, any uh, leadership role, really, as you go through from zero scaling up, you've got to keep on resetting what it is that you're what it is that you're doing from being a you know a sort of startup leader with 20 people to scaling or getting out of things to let other people um, get on with different areas that's the part that i love and um still very much studying amazing thank you it's a great career path to be a coo and one that i think is increasingly getting their kind of increased respect it deserves i think often historically it was kind of the number two in in the shadows of it doing all the the hard work in many ways but now it's such a strategic position that so many of our network want to become and uh we're really pleased on the podcast to be able to shine a light on great coos uh, like yourself we've teased the audience enough it's time to talk about deep your current role which you've been involved with from the off so tell us a bit more about deep for those who don't know anything about it how the opportunity came about and what your role within the business is. So Deep is on a mission to make humans aquatic. Another way of thinking about it is to create NASA for the oceans. So it's based on the thesis that the oceans are the majority of our planet, 71% by surface area, much, much more if you think about habitable volume, habitable not by us as we're land mammals, but habitable by species. So we really live on an ocean planet. And we have this strange relationship where we sort of assume that it's all been discovered and studied, but it actually hasn't. And the more more time I spend, the more dig, you find some things are very, very well understood. But you talk to the world leading experts in many areas, and they will tell you, you know, we really don't understand that mechanism or that species. So what we're trying to do with Deep really is help solve that problem in particular by creating better access for humans so that then all of that research and that familiarity with the ocean can develop. So we've then down-selected that to two main areas. So one is equipment and products, if you like. So how do you make it dramatically easier for people to spend time in the water? And then the other side is the human factors, so human performance, training, physically being able to operate. And that one is interesting because it also then starts coming up very closely with the space exploration projects as well, where you're putting small teams of people in extreme environments for very long periods. So we've also got some kind of great interest and potential joint research projects and so on to help improve ourselves as a species in our ability to do this kind of thing. Wow, it's mind-blowing and uh, so exciting. It really is. I remember the first time we heard about it, it was insane just to think that this is something that really hasn't been done before and that there is there are people out there bold enough to take that on and uh, you know you were the right man for the job and uh, it's so exciting to see how the business has evolved you've got this incredible mission I'd love it if you don't mind just to share a bit more about what you envisage the future looking like and your plan at deep on how you'll actually go about achieving it that's a huge question so um well our founder is uh, incredibly far-sighted and, and I think it really comes from that. So one part is you've got to think 50, 100, 200 years ahead. So 
part of the challenge is like, at what level do you answer that question in a world where we, you know, when businesses you're thinking quarterly or, you know, maybe up to three or five years. So this is very much trying to solve an intergenerational problem. So the frame of reference you have to use, a nice example is if you think that for ocean exploration or vehicles in the ocean, in some ways, we're at early stage of, of aviation, you know, it's in the small submarine world or something like that, you know, you're at a state or underwater habitats, you're really very close to, you know, first flight, if you take, think about the Wright brothers. So you've got to project forward, what might progress in this area look like? So from the Wright brothers' first flights to the first jet was 40 years, and to stealth was another 40 years. So what we're looking at is, is what we're doing right now in terms of moving the barrier out, we also see as being almost prototype level for what might be there in 50 years. So that frame of reference is very important. What it looks like, to make it maybe a bit more real for now, the next few years is taking our first habitat system, the Sentinel system, developing that really at as much scale and have the greatest early impact on science as possible. So we're in the process of talking to deployment partners and nation states for how that can best be used. And similarly with the other areas of the, of the business, so submarines, diving equipment or, or suits, and also what we call the Deep Institute, which is the training establishment, particularly focused around the campus, which is in um, just next to Chepstow. Amazing. You recently came out of stealth mode. Obviously, I knew about this a few years ago because we were obviously part of the team that were leading the search to hire you into that role. But it's one of those things where you know this very exciting thing is happening and you, you can't tell anyone. So I was so excited when the press came out. So for those that are maybe starting to familiarize themselves with this and obviously listening to this story, so how has the build been so far? And what have been some of your biggest learnings from particularly from those earlier days to now? So initially, it was very fast process to try to put together a, essentially a light business model and financial model and, and work out what it is that we need to do in order to advance on the mission. And then early on, one of the greatest challenges was actually trying to assemble a team of the skill sets and specialists you needed in an area where the there are sort of aren't any, you know, you, you say, well, we need another habitat designer. It's very hard to find that on LinkedIn. <laughs> so what we were going to do is think around that problem and find incredible engineers, either in the subsea, particularly manned, um, human-occupied subsea environment, or in other disciplines that would be able to contribute. So trying to find the right team. And then also, the operators, so a range of different divers and submarine operators and so on, to try to get that combination of real hands-on experience in as, as close to disciplines as we could find. So the early first year or so was finding the right team, trying to pull them together, also deciding on a location. So initially, we were globally location agnostic and work out where we should be, went through a whole process of the initial setup, deciding that the set of factors around the UK and Southwest made a lot of sense as a first footprint, particularly around engineering, dive and and sub-disciplines, but also being somewhere where you can relatively easy, easily access it from around the world. You've got other big pools of talent because it's not just those specialists, it's everybody else you need to run a business. We're in the process now of looking international locations. We've got a growing presence in London. So looking at how the, the org expands like that. 
And then maybe one other thing to pick up is the joy, but also the challenge of defining almost everything. So you say, right, let's make the world best ever underwater habitat or a new baseline for underwater habitats. But what does that mean? So how deep, how many people, for how long, where should you deploy it, all of those things. And what we found is that that's a very difficult process to go through. And also, particularly in the engineering world, the engineers are, are usually so constrained by incoming mandates from clients and so on. It's kind of incredibly exciting, but also a process to say, we're going to put a stake in the ground at that depth. And you know, here's another one. And trying to get good at making those decisions was one of the other big learnings. Yeah, oh, it's, it's just so interesting. And, and I guess you've had to adapt incredibly quickly and there's so many unknowns. So I guess that must be very exciting, but also slightly daunting. But it's been awesome to see the evolution. Can you share a bit more about the impact that Deep is going to have when it comes to climate change? Because obviously, the, probably the biggest existential crisis our, our world is facing is the climate crisis. It's on everyone's minds. So what's the impact there? And why should people in the future consider the potential of living underwater? Yes. So climate change, I'll, I'll sort of answer and not answer deliberately. So, you know, I'm, I'm a long way from being a climate scientist and it's an enormous and very controversial subject. But just on a on a risk basis, if we believe that there's a good chance that there are climate change issues that are potentially existential, it really doesn't matter that much how philosophically you want to argue whether that is the case or not. It makes sense for us as a species to take quite serious action and at least understand it better. So what we've defined as our space is to essentially try to rapidly improve better tools and equipment to be able to understand it and get some answers, particularly in the ocean domain. So the way we've structured thinking is how do we get those tools out there? And you could think about it as how do we provide better microscopes or you know better telescopes to all of the experts who might be able to make an impact on the problem. So I'm sure you, you also have looked at all of this, but you think about what I've described in just pure size of the oceans and role in in the climate, that they're also overlooked. So we we should do everything we can to protect the rainforests, and they are also important, but just by size. You know, people don't think about the fact that the oceans are 70 plus percent of the ocean's planet, and depending on what you define by uh, rainforest or forested areas, you're talking about four to seven percent. So, it, another way of looking at it is every other breath we take was provided for us by the ocean in the carbon cycle. They're phenomenally important. Then you get into things like the oceanic pump systems, also where small changes or ocean warming, ocean acidification, and we understand some of those processes but not nearly well enough, and the the impact can be incredibly dramatic. So this is really about us providing tools to uh, those who are experts to go and do better research. Incredible. I love it. Really love it. It's great that Deep is involved in that to really help because there's so many unknowns, as you said. I guess you're you're only at the beginning, really, of what you're trying to build. This is a multi-generational project with huge impact. But we can't always just think about the future. What's in the short term? What are you most excited about in the year or two ahead? And uh, yeah, I would love to hear what's coming down the line to excite our audience with. There's so much. I mean, it's it's literally week by week. There are amazingly cool things that are happening. And you, as with any business, you know, you you uh, often spending your times on the your time on the problem areas rather than in, enjoying the good bits. But we just hosted an incredible gathering of the world's submarine operators looking at how we can 
ensure there's better communication and really good handling of of safety and uh, so on in that area that was very much driven by the by the group we just provided somewhere for them to come together we have some sort of shorter term missions where we can support other projects doing sub and dive missions around the world and then the core of it is the is the progress on our core products so it's the ability to start building the sentinels putting them out into the world and the same on submarines and you know it's 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 amazing and it, it's also getting this excitement back in sort of design engineering creating creating amazing physical things in an era where many of us have spent our time on on digital projects for the last 10 20 years Oh, that sounds so exciting. Um, you mentioned a Sentinel. That's kind of the centerpiece of this project. Do you mind just bringing to life a little bit about what that actually is and entails and why it's so exciting? Yeah, so this really is the the first place for Deep to start. So what we aim to do is look at all of the work that was done in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's amazing history that's quite forgotten. So people like Jacques Cousseau, the C-Lab program in the States, and many others there was an era that was a little bit like the the space exploration phase in that period of trying to develop underwater habitats. So we we went through all of that, and then essentially we aimed to build an updated kind of rebaselined version that would also be able to operate at scale. So what the Sentinel is is it's not so much a thing as a system. So it's designed to be able to be configured in many different ways. It's modular. And it can be deployed and redeployed relatively easily in the scheme of you know, um, underwater human-occupied habitats. So to make that a bit more real, a base example would be, if you imagine, six-meter diameter and able to take, you can see it on the website, able to take a crew of six. We could live on the seafloor, anything We've designed it to be able to operate up to 300 meters, although there are obviously lots of use cases in between, and to be deployed in most sites around the continental shelf globally. Wow. I think when you see it on the website, you think James Bond layer, don't you? It's just quite an incredible image and super exciting. I know, I, given our day job at JBM, that culture is fundamental to the success of any startup and business. So I know you're particularly passionate about building culture and uh, high-performing teams. So how would you describe Deep's team culture? And I guess to just to add to that a bit more, there are probably going to be people listening to this that are just super excited by what they're hearing. So if they resonate with the culture you're about to tell us about, it would be also great to understand uh, what you look for when you're hiring and if there are any advice for anyone that wants to get involved. Yes. And as you say, it's in some ways, that's the thing that we are really building. That's the thing that will mean success over the long run. So we've spent a lot of time defining it and particularly being very, very robust with letting people in. I think that's the most crucial thing. If you get the right people together and aligned, that's the strongest way to build the right culture. So we've very much defined all of those aspects. And I think to draw out a few parts of it, I think you know one is that people have to be genuinely driven by the mission. And we've been so lucky to have phenomenal people, particularly in the early days. You know, you, you have, have this trepidation because you've got the, you know this wild thing that we're building, and you talk to people who are absolute experts or world leaders in their area, and you're first telling them about it, and you're nervous that they're going to tell you it's ridiculous and um, and walk away. And had so many experiences where you do that, and people would go quiet for a moment, and then they'd say, 
this is what I've been looking for for my entire life. They are absolute legends in these domains. So that kind of next level mission commitment is amazing. And it's a huge privilege to be able to kind of help build an organization that makes a platform for people like that. Then the main point I'd draw out is, is being genuinely fearless about what we're doing. So we've got to make bold steps. We've got to take controlled risk, not with people's safety, but about decisions, about allocation of capital and so on. And in hand with that is curiosity, which we, we talk about a lot as well. So it's very easy with what we're doing to say, this is the way we normally do it. This is the way you know it's done in the North Sea. This is the way you know it's been done in diving for years. And there's huge value to all of that experience. But it's also got to be applied to what we're doing and where we see the ball going in 10 or 20 years. So that constantly sort of that curiosity is another attribute that we hopefully see in, in the culture here. Fantastic. And have you got many hiring plans? Is there any any final tips you'd give to somebody if they want to send their CV across to you? Yes. So yeah, hiring, yes. We've got a, an amazing team. It's around 100 at the moment, sort of well balanced, but uh, a number of different areas of the organization will be ramping up quite significantly. And also that we are, maybe this relates back to that COO role and, and that capability, whatever jobs description it is operating people across the organization we hugely appreciate very t-shaped people so we're looking for people who have done amazing things in the past who are really committed who can move fast but that t-shape and particularly being able to bridge between these specialist areas and sort of commercial driving a business forward that's the highest value so you know we encourage all applicants would say think very carefully it is very full-on it's you know stretching it's got all the challenges of sort of any other startup and then a, a few more thrown in but if, if that's the challenge that people are up for we'd absolutely love to hear from them brilliant now i'm sure you'll uh, you'll be getting a few applications before we get to our wrap-up question steve um i wanted to touch upon leadership just as a topic because you've been a leader in different industries for over 20 years so i wanted to ask you what for you makes a great leader and how has your leadership style over the years evolved that'd be great to hear your perspectives on this it hasn't changed much since early models and sort of concepts so what i aspire to do is have a, an empowering model which has essentially a very low low hierarchy and ability to work together with mutual respect between people but get that balance where it then doesn't become too much of a sort of slow moving democracy and so on that was very much the style that i saw from very early on in the people that i most respected in the army and at different stages in the career, and also amongst the most successful business leaders. So it's it's that point, you know, of if you're trying to identify a good leader, look at the team that they're responsible for, not how they present themselves to the world. So it's often it's not the the standout obvious people who are getting the great results and who've got happy, super productive people around them. So that's what I try to do. I think also being conscious that the situational leadership approach is very, very important. So different situations do require really quite different approaches. And then I think the other one is actually the team play. So realizing, not trying to do everything, realizing where you're really good in some situations, not very good in others, and having the confidence to kind of be 
be more open and flexible about it. It's like we need to we need to do a transition of this area of the business or we need to do a sales rollout working out who in your team is the best person to lead that and so being able to flex and have different people coming to the fore yeah it's great really interesting advice and i'm sure it's been very helpful for any particularly any inexperienced leaders that may be stepping up into leadership just i think can learn a lot from that we're sadly at our wrap-up question steve so this is 40 minute mentor if you could be mentored by one person dead or alive who would it be and why i think marcus aurelius not to be too bold but great answer but yeah the, the combination of uh being able to be hugely compassionate think at a philosophical level but also deal with you know the brutal reality of life in a way that that is effective that's uh best i can think of that's the first of the podcast steve no i love it i love firsts thank you we've got this series uh mystery roulette questions from our audience who know that you're coming on so please pick one two or three and i'll see what they've chosen for you number two please <laughs> Number two. Okay. What's your advice for any underwater living skeptics? Yeah. So I think it's very, it's very simple. You know, we definitely don't profess to have all of the answers. We believe that over time, humans understanding the oceans better will be a good thing. That's the core point. And actively doing something about many of the challenges facing the world is how we should be acting. Also, you know, a lot of this has only just sort of come out since coming out of itself is that we're actually not trying to live underwater. That's not the point. What we're trying to do is study, understand, appreciate the oceans better. And a byproduct of that is people spending a long time, long time down there. But that's not the emphasis. So maybe sort of reframe that. And it's perfectly reasonable to believe that we won't yield any results or the resources should be used in a different way. But when you think about the resources we spend on other scientific exploration or space exploration, what we're doing in the oceans is a fraction. It's like orders of magnitude less costly. And we are almost certain to discover meaningful things. So one thing we haven't talked about is species discovery. And it's something we're, we're doing some work with the Ocean Census Project, among others. But you know, most people don't realize that there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of species in the ocean that we know are out there, but we haven't discovered yet. So, you know, it's guaranteed if you said that there's a high chance that we'll find one species on Mars, we would spend billions to go and look at it. We know they're there. We know exactly how they'll help, but there's a good chance they'll help with human health, uh, you know, if you need that justification. So it's right to be sceptical, but that's very much the way I think about it. No, I love it. I love the reframing there. And uh, and I think just the kind of managing expectations of anyone listening to this, this is not trying to send us all to the bottom of the ocean. This is an exploration, which hopefully will help society in the long run. I think there's no real downside to that. Finally, Steve, if there's one piece of advice that you could leave our listeners with today, what would it be? I think it's just keep going, keep fighting. Like the uh, certainly on the entrepreneurial with any career role, I think, you know, particularly we're going through a phase where there's a lot of negative things in the world at the moment and a lot of people finding life very difficult. So it's actually our ability to go through those dark periods. Also, you know, when nobody puts a label on it and tells you this is a really hard time in your life, but it'll be okay in three months time. So it's just that it's, a, it's the ability to push through the difficult periods, pick yourself up again, reframe and move on. That's the single most important bit of advice, I, I think. I think it's fantastic advice. A great place to leave it, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us on 42 Minute Mentor and bringing 
deep to life for us. I think it's a first for this podcast and I'm sure lots of our listeners will be straight on the internet to learn more about the amazing work you're doing. So it's great to see you again and yeah, wishing you and the team all the very best for the exciting years ahead. Incredible. Thanks very much, James. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortunate Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.